Hello and welcome to the Ocean Impact Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Silverwood. And the date of the release of this podcast was the 7th of October 2020, which means it's two days after we closed the application period for the Ocean Impact Pitch Fest 2020, which means I can now reveal the incredible results of our inaugural campaign calling for startups and businesses who are positively impacting the ocean. We had, wait for it, over 190 applications from businesses and startups around the world. In fact, 37 countries were in the spread when it came to those applications, with just over 50% coming from Australia. So I can say that the entire team at Ocean Impact, Impact Organization, particularly myself and Nick, are absolutely over the moon. We are thrilled with the response. So thank you, thank you, thank you for everyone who's talked about it, who shared it, who tagged a startup. And of course, thank you to everyone who took the time to apply. We will now spend the next couple of weeks carefully reviewing the applications before providing a short list of the finalists in due course. But on to today's podcast guest, it is Lane Beachley, seven times world surfing champion, regarded as the most accomplished female surfer of all time. And if you think she accomplished a lot in her surfing career, wait till you hear what she's done post-retirement. She set up her own charities and foundations. She's got a brand new program called Awake Academy that she'll be talking about. Board positions, chairperson of Surfing Australia, and an incredible coach, mentor, motivational speaker. So I had a ball talking to Lane Beachley over Instagram Live. We talk about the state of the world, what it's like discovering the ocean, living in Manly, love, work, life, everything in between. It's a great chat. I really enjoyed it. I hope you do too. Don't forget to help us grow our audience, rate the podcast, share it around, write a review. All that stuff helps us make an even greater impact. Again, thank you for following the journey so far. We are over the moon with the results of PitchFest and we can't wait to take you on the next leg of our ocean impact journey. Hi everyone, Tim Silverwood here from Ocean Impact Organization and very pleased to be bringing you another in our Going Live With series and our guest today will be Lane Beachley and I'm really excited about this conversation. She's uh, already on the ball and requesting to go live right now so we will jump into this conversation with Lane very, very shortly. We're in the last week of Pitch Fest. Oh, there you are. Hey, Lane. Hi. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm good. Catching the last rays of sun on a beautiful spring day there. Love it. Yes. Are you in your place in the Northern Beaches? Yes. Yep. Nice. Queenscliff. Queenscliff. What a great part of the world. I'm a few beaches further north than you up in Bilgola. Oh, nice. Yeah. But we are... We share a, a mutual connection to Manly now because that's where the headquarters of Ocean Impact Organisation are and I'd, I'd love to talk to you a little bit about Manly today. Okay. Um, 
But why don't we go right to the beginning? This will become an episode of the Ocean Impact Podcast, and I really love when we bring on guests to to dive deep into the ocean and the guest's relationship with it. Now, being a seven-time world champion surfer, you obviously have a deep relationship with the ocean, but maybe take us back to those early years and your first memories of the ocean. I first recall being plonked near the ocean before I could walk and just falling in love with nature. I fell in love with the feeling that it created in me, being on the sand, feeling the sun on my skin, the salt water, the smell of salt water. I mean, it's it's just classic Australia. And uh, I was very fortunate that I was adopted into a beach-loving family with the last name Beachley and became a pro surfer. I mean, there's no more fortunate twist of fate. So falling in love with the ocean, I think, was just in my DNA ultimately, or it certainly became part of my DNA. So those early days of being on the sand and feeling and being immersed in salt water for the first time, was that in Manly and around that area? Yeah, so I started surfing as a four-year-old down at Manly, but even before I was surfing, my dad was, you know, throwing me in the water and getting comfortable with that environment. So that was, I learned to surf actually on the harbour side, waiting for the ferries to come in to produce a bit of boat wake, and I got comfortable on my KFC foamy. And then uh, after about four years of age, I was over on the, on the ocean side catching waves and challenging all the boys out in the water. Does that conspire? competitive spirit was that there from those very early days of your um your involvement with surfing yeah absolutely i've always been a real competitor i've had that feistiness about me and uh you know i've done a lot of emotional work i've done a lot of reflection and i'm a very introspective person so uh we put it down to the fact that uh, i was in a humidity crib for six weeks after i was born and that fight to survive I feel is where the majority of my competitive spirit emanates from. And then I was just able to channel it into a sport that I became the best in the world at. But uh, I also loved competing. I loved challenging myself, stepping outside of my comfort zone. I was competing in soccer, cricket, hockey, tennis, basketball, netball. I loved, I just loved competing. And there were sports that I competed in that I was absolutely abysmal at. And one of those was water polo maybe because my hands were too small or perhaps it was the chlorine i don't know but there's just nothing quite like salt water stick to the salt water for sure yeah exactly so <laughs> actually I, um oh, sorry i was just going to tell you a story very quickly about i was at the um the london olympic games many years ago um as an athlete liaison officer and being landlocked for six weeks in the middle of london made me extremely uncomfortable. The, the ocean is place, my place of solace. It's where I feel connected. It's where I feel most calm. It's where I feel the most freedom. And I didn't realise how much I was missing the salt water until I went to Barcelona straight after the Olympics for a holiday with my sister and I dove in the water and the minute I dove in the water, I started crying. It was oh, almost wow. like a homecoming. I just I didn't actually realise how how distressed I was internally from my lack of salt water fix. And then I realized that 90% of our blood is uh, salt water. So uh, no wonder I'm so drawn to it. One of the first... 50% of our blood, so. (laughs) One of the first um, podcasts that we did when we uh, started the series was with a a guy called uh, Dr. Wallace J. Nichols. And he does a huge amount of work on the science of human relationships with water and what it does to us the chemistry inside us so i find that incredibly fascinating i'm the same as you take me away from salt water and i i i feel really corrupted and really disoriented yeah Yeah, totally very discombobulated i feel like i've lost my center i feel like 
I, I can't find any sense of calm or relaxation. I need to either be able to see it, smell it, or be immersed in it. Yeah. Look, I've got a bit of a meandering conversation ahead with a few conversation points, but given you've had such a long association with salt water and surfing, do you want to give us a bit of a glimpse at your sort of attitudes and thoughts on how you've seen the ocean change throughout your life? Is there um, a particular concern or issue that really bubbles to the surface when you think about the state of play with, with planet ocean, as we like to call it at the moment? Yeah, well, the state of play, um, you know, when you first ask the question, I think about how dramatically uh, enhanced and improved the cleanliness of our oceans have become. You know, when I first started surfing down at Manly, I remember when southeasters used to blow, that was the worst wind that could blow because all the sewerage would get blown in onto the beach and it would just smell so bad and it was just disgraceful. And I thought this isn't somewhere where people are going to want to travel to. And then when I started travelling to America and going to Huntington Beach, for example, and walking down onto the beach there and heading towards the sand or towards the shoreline and having my feet covered in oil, uh, and then attempting to scrape those oils, you know, those dollops of oil off the bottom of my feet using the Velcro of my of my leash to, to you know, prevent my feet from slipping off my board and then those oil deposits getting stuck in my wax and, um, and then travelling to Japan and just seeing how they treated their beaches like trash dumps and then travelling to Indonesia and seeing how they just burn all of their all of their trash, travelling to places like the Maldives where it's just littered in plastic I was deeply distressed with how we were disrespecting uh, our oceans. And I feel like it has a lot to do with our ignorance. We just don't realise that our oceans are what give us life. Our oceans actually are what give us oxygen. And if without the health of our oceans, we can't survive. And I don't know if many people actually realise that. And now, you know, I think about how we're disrespecting uh, our environment and taking it for granted on so many different levels and I actually just posted something on Instagram about that in regards to you know the cu our current federal government's talking about a gas fueled recovery and I'm like well that's a real short-term and finite response to a long-term unsustainable problem and that's the growth of our population that's the destruction of our natural environment it's the it's the abuse of our natural resources it's the it's the um, the shift and changes in the climates that are undeniable. It's the fact that our our reefs are dying, and without our reefs, we can't breathe. It's the destruction of our forests, and without our forests, we can't breathe. It's our melting ice caps, and when they start to melt, and all the carbon that's stored under that, there goes our atmosphere. Like this, I just don't think we truly understand how we're not guests on this planet. We're actually connected to it, and we need to start taking some ownership and guardianship of this planet because every single one of us can make a difference. Every, every one of our voices can make a difference. And sometimes I think it's that apathetic mindset where it's like, well, I can't do anything about it, so let's just let someone else deal with it or I'm not going to be around long enough to worry about it, so I'll just screw it up while I'm here and let someone else fix it. And that really distresses me, yeah, as you can absolutely. tell. Absolutely. And no, thank you so much <laughs> for... For sharing that, I mean, it's obviously a sentiment that I share and, and most people tuning into this podcast will agree with. And, you know, we have this incredible opportunity during this time of reset to 
devise a new vision for the future and a new version of leadership, yet we just see the same old business as usual, helping your mates in these giant fossil fuel companies to, you know, to persist with this stuff that we know is, you know, killing our planet and making life harder for so many people. A hundred percent. It's cold. Don't be afraid. Actually, I am petrified of the fact that we are addicted to the use of coal. Now, I'm not saying wipe out coal and wipe out fossil fuels because I still use them. I have a diesel car. Um, I have solar panels on my roof and I look around the northern beaches and there's so many roofs that are just bathed in sun that aren't actually taking the energy from this abundant resource that we have and feeding it back to the grid. But then apparently the grid don't want it because there's too much energy coming back into it. Mm -hmm. So therefore they can't make money from it. So mm -hmm. uh, it's, yeah, it's finding that, that balance. But if we don't start looking for alternatives, then we're just going to keep doing what we've already done and create a whole lot more of what we don't want. Yeah. And I'm going to, going to talk to you about leadership as we continue the conversation but um okay let's go back to professional surfing um for those people that are tuning in that don't know the incredible story of your career so let's kind of go through it so you know launching as a 16 year old in what 1988 um as a 1989 surf <laughs> oh no sorry you're right yeah it was 88 when i actually i had my first event as a 16 year old yeah yeah. And so then obviously, you know, slogging it out on what I can only imagine would have been a, a very unique and testing sporting atmosphere as a female surfer and going on winning your first world title at 1998, six consecutive titles and then a seventh in um, 2006. But tell us a little bit about what that was like being a competitive surfer in that environment in the 80s and 90s. It was really challenging. It was actually a bit of a bitch fest too. And you know, the, the girls, I mean, it was a really challenging environment, primarily because there was, we all had a scarcity mentality. There was very little support from the industry. Actually, there was no support from the industry. There was very little support from mainstream. There was very little opportunity to promote and, and, and be marketed. Uh, our governing body didn't even believe in us. And we certainly didn't have the respect or the uh, support of our male peers. So it was all every woman for herself. And fortunately, there were several that banded together. And there's a great movie coming out soon called Girls Can't Surf. And it's all about highlighting the plight of women surfing through the 80s and 90s and what we endured to ensure that the current generation are benefiting, are benefiting from the platform that we laid and my predecessors and their predecessors laid. So it, it was not as glamorous as it is today. You know, we used to sleep in our board bags. Uh, Pauline Mensah tells a great story about how, you know, after she won her first world title, her, her world title, she wasn't able to afford to go and do the tour. So if she received uh, gifts, you know, it's like a, a bike as a trophy, she would sell it to then be able to afford to pay for accommodation at the next venue. Or she'd buy a whole bunch of Levi jeans in America and take them to France and sell them for 150% profit. She was very entrepreneurial. Uh, but they were the things that we had to resort to. And and we not only had to deal with that, but we also dragged each other down because there was such a finite opportunity to succeed. And and then we were also bullied by the industry once it started to explode. And, oh, my goodness, there's so many stories of, of just absolute torment. But on top of that, 
when I flip it around, I think, you know, it was such an amazing opportunity to do something different. And when I joined the tour, I felt like we'd lost the benefit of gender. I thought I looked at all the girls and went, you're acting like men, you're dressed like men, you want to surf like men. It's all because you want the respect of the men, but we've lost the benefit of gender. And Lisa Anderson really broke down a lot of those barriers by embracing her femininity, her beauty, her style, her grace. She was one of the thought leaders behind asking Quicksilver to create a women's brand, which then exploded into Roxy, which then outselled Quicksilver. And, uh, you know, it's really started a women's movement. And I just wanted women surfing to be able to stand on its own two feet. So to see the governing body in 2019, the WSL, be the first sport in the world to announce pay equity just filled me with immense pride and satisfaction. You should be so proud and that incredible perseverance and endurance to see it out, to see, like you said, that pay parity in 2019 announcement. So when did you take it upon yourself or were you invited to actually go into some of these leadership positions in the ASP and even now your role with Surfing Australia? Well, with the ASP, I wasn't invited. I just walked on in and just said, I'm here. Because <laughs> pa Pam Burridge was my mentor and I travelled with her and her husband, Mark, and he shaped my boards. And basically I wanted to emulate what Pam was doing. She sat on the board for quite some time and I saw her. She was fading out. I wanted to step in. And I've always had a bit of a political mindset or a, a bit of an agitation mindset. You know, I don't like settling for status quo. I just want to go in there and challenge everybody and think we can do this better. Better. we can do this differently um, so I sat on the board I was on tour for 19 years and I spent 15 years on the board and um, and relished in the opportunity to really make a stand and make a difference and take women surfing into a whole new realm the opportunity to then become chair of surfing Australia was something that was presented to me and I must admit at first at first thought I literally almost put my hands like down in front of me in an act of defiance under the table like no way I mean it's called chairman for a reason right I'm a woman I'm not going to be able to fulfill this role I talked myself out of it so many times and um and I've been in that role for about five or six years now and it took me about three years to fully step into it and own it. But uh, in that period, it's been a, a tremendous opportunity to really create a whole new extension of the legacy that I've had in professional surfing and continue to give back to a sport that has given me so much. Oh, good on you. So remarkable. And that's not even touching on all the incredible work that you've done through your charity work for other charities mm -hmm. and your own charities. Um, but let's even just do a quick fast forward to to where you stand now in 2020, you've just launched Awake Academy. And this is, I'm guessing in your mind, the culmination of this incredible life experience that you've garnered and fostered to now be launching um, some programs to help other people with their journeys. You wanna give us a bit of a, a spiel about Awake Academy? Sure, thank you. Yeah, it's a, it's been a brainchild for quite, uh, quite some time. So Awake Academy is focused on cultivating growth, happiness and connection in humanity. I wanna shortcut the struggle. During this pandemic period, we've seen a lot of challenges and a lot of setbacks, a lot of uncertainty. And what that does is it actually increases our levels of fear and anxiety. So the, the academy and the course that I created called Own Your Truth 
Own Your Truth is a no bullshit seven round online course to help you unlock your internal GPS. And the idea is to help people detach from fear, take control of their lives and live a life by design, no longer by default. And these are all the lessons that I learned throughout my my professional surfing career. And I, you know, I often say I'm a seven times world champion. I'm the only athlete in the world to have won six consecutive world titles, the only surfer to have won six consecutive world titles. But five of them were won in a state of fear. Only two of them were won in a state of love. And so the difference is, well, titles number one and seven, I absolutely loved every minute of it. I didn't have this overwhelming sense of expectation or pressure on my shoulders. I didn't weigh myself down with the burden of thinking about what everyone else was doing. I really enjoyed the process and I allowed the outcome to sort itself out. I focused on everything that was going to enable me to become a better competitor, a better surfer, a better human being. And so at the end of the day, when I won the world titles, it was, it was almost like a sense of elation. But two, four, two, three, four, five, and six, they were just weighed down in fear. Like I just, I had to win at all costs. And I had the, I was tagged as having the compassion of a tiger shark. And that was because I had zero empathy for myself or my peers. It's like, if you're in my way and you're trying to stop me from winning, I'm literally just going to bite you and let you bleed out as I swim past because I'm on this relentless pursuit of winning. And I didn't quite get it. And then when I got to the end of the sixth one and I realized, wow, that's actually, yes, it's brought me incredible success, but it's been at a significant cost. So when I reflected back on those costs and I looked at what I was and way I was behaving and how unsustainable it was, I thought I want to create a course to help people detach from fear, bring back the fun and help them find their flow. So stop investing in struggle, stop investing in fear. There is another way, but you have to be open-minded enough to do that. So that's what Own Your Truth is all about. So helping people own their truth. And it's, and it's basically an awareness of your feelings, an awareness of your judgments and your stories and your triggers, and then alignment with who you truly are, alignment with your dream team, and then an awakening of your spirit by bringing in more fun, more celebration, more play, and, uh, and, a making, and taking ownership of the choices that you, that you make on a daily basis so you can truly own your truth. A little passionate wow. about it, aren't I? Well, yeah, and I think that there's so much to it, not only all those incredible learnings and skills and knowledge that you've been able to gain over your years, but also the time, this 2020. Like you said it before, it was a brainchild. It's probably been in there in the, in the shadows for a while, but what was it about 2020? Was it the timeline that was always projected or is there something special about this unique time in the human story that meant this is the year we get this thing out there and let it do its thing? Well, I literally started working on it in 2018 and it was while I still had my own charity, Aim for the Stars, which was a 15-year charity. It, it provided financial and moral support support to young girls and women across Australia to achieve their dreams in music, science, business, sports, academia, uh, you name it, we supported it. And so after 15 years of providing about a million dollars in scholarships to over 500 young girls and women, my passion started to wane. And... And it was requiring me to invest in doing things a little bit differently. And I realized that the more I invested in that, the less I was able to invest in something new. And I felt like the, the aim for the stars had really out, it had outperformed the expectations I had for it. So it was time to close it down and start focusing my attention on something else. And Awake Academy just organically grew because I was developing online 
platforms or developing online education um, as I was doing it myself because I took a snapshot of my life and I was doing between 45 to 60 talks a year and I was on the road 180 days a year and I thought that's unsustainable. I mean, I'm literally telling people to do or not to do what I'm currently doing. So, <laughs> so I needed to literally take a stock take of my own life and step back and go, well, how can I make this more sustainable? And also how can I in increase my impact? Because when I get on stage, I share so much and so, and so much depth of information that it's almost like I, I feel like I vomit on my audience. It's like, okay, you deal with that. Bye. <laughs> and so I wanted to create a, a platform where they could come onto um, a safe and secure and well-supported space such as Awake Academy and find a tribe of like-minded, growth-minded individuals and self-pace their own development. And that's what this course is all about. Oh, I can't um, wait to see how it goes. And obviously anyone who's interested should go and check it out. There's lots of uh, wonderful information on the website and on the socials. What about some of the other work that you've done? So um, obviously you mentioned the Aim for the Stars and the incredible impact that had, but you've also been such a passionate voice for other initiatives and organisations. So maybe talk about some of those environmental programs that you've lent your, your name um, and time to over the years, um, namely you know, WWF and Planet Ark, and I'm sure you've been very supportive of many other ocean conservation projects as well. Yeah, I, I'm basically a, an advocate for every every uh, ocean conservation <laughs> program you can think of. It's sometimes, um, sometimes uh, officially and sometimes unofficially. It just, <laughs> but but I, I just recognise that every action that I take can make a difference. So um, I've been a, a spokesperson and ambassador for Planet Ark for 17 years now and uh, promoting their recycling campaigns. I was the face of their aluminium recycling campaign and now, I was the face, now I'm the face of their um, recycling of the printer cartridges because a lot of that recycled ink then gets put into tarmac and roads and planter boxes and schools and rulers and pens and things like that. Um, I'm also now a, proud, a, a newly proud ambassador for the WWF Australia and they're our official uh, connection partner at the Awake Academy. So we donate $7 from every course sold back to WWF to help them with to fund their initiatives. And uh, I'm all about you know helping raise awareness for the plight of nature. Um, most predominantly at the moment is the plight of our koala bears, which in by what? 10 or 20 or 25 years, there's a good chance they may be extinct if we keep clearing their habitat and going in the way that we're going. So that's pretty distressing. Um, and I also lend my voice to other campaigns and programs, anything that can help shine a light and raise awareness and build education and knowledge and inspire people to take action. So take three for the sea, for example, and uh, surf aid and, you know, Basically, and all anyone those that others. Wants, yeah, all yeah. of the others that I'm involved. I can't even think about all of them. But uh, yeah, I'm just I'm just passionate about making a difference and want to do everything that I can. So I literally make a pact to myself that every time I walk out of the water at the beach, I will consciously take three for the sea. But I like to take about thirty for the sea. <laughs> you get ahead on your quota, which uh, yeah, exactly. Means if you need to have a day off for whatever reason, <laughs> you can. Yeah, if I'm running late, I need to run. <laughs> You're ahead. So one of the notes that we've got down here to talk about is um, is the new documentary coming out about uh, shark nets and the way we're treating sharks around Australia. 
It's called Envoy Shark Cull. Um, no cement concrete date yet about when it's coming out, but the film is essentially made and uh, you appear in that one. So why don't we um, have a little bit of a chat about sharks and what it was about this particular project when they approached you that you said, yep, I'm going to happily put my name and voice to this um, because, you know, obviously there's a lot of awareness around the plight of sharks, but it's also potentially a little bit sort of contentious in some surfing circles. So tell us a little bit about the, um, the background and, and what you had to say about it in the, in the upcoming documentary. Well, yes, you're right. It's a bit contentious or a bit controversial. But what I, one of the things that got me across the line when I spoke to Andre, who made the film, was recognising that this was a positive film. This isn't a fear-based film. This is actually educating people on the importance of uh, understanding the role sharks play in the ocean and how, they, yes, they are a natural predator and how what role we can play in protecting them versus just protecting ourselves. And, you know, the voice I wanted to lend was that I believe that we can coexist and that we just need to have a better understanding of how we can protect them and preserve them without compromising our own sense of safety and well-being. Also, when I went to South Africa for the first time in 1998 and I learned that the shark net system over there, which is replicated around the world, caught more sharks on the way out than it did on the way in. I thought, we've got this false sense of security that shark necks are actually protecting us, where in factual fact they're not. They don't really protect us, and all they do is is indiscriminately kill a whole lot of bycatch. And, it, and seeing this film made me even hungrier and more determined to to shine a light on the plight of our sharks and how important the, just the integral role they play in the, the natural ecosystem of the ocean. It's just, uh, yeah, it was really, it was really eye opening for me and I was really grateful to be a part of it. Yeah. Well, we can't wait. We haven't uh, laid our eyes on it yet, but we can't wait to see it. And we actually have got a podcast with Andre, um, the director and the man behind um, Envoy ready to come out so we'll have to maybe fast track the release of that podcast to sort of coincide with this one with you and it sort of goes back a little bit to that conversation we were having before around this disconnection like we've so happily put that label on sharks and we put that label on shark nets and the media's jumped on it just to sort of say oh no that's what we do to falsely um, perceived that we're protected, but we need to follow the science and the data and make informed decisions, um, which is unfortunately, back to the earlier conversation, so lacking like around the energy debate for the future and the way we're treating, you know, habitat for koalas. It's all about this disconnection and not following the science. Yeah, and that just comes down to a state of ignorance. You know, we just, we're putting people and profits before the planet and that's just not good enough. It's not acceptable. It's not sustainable. You think about your children's children and how they're going to have to have to mop up the mess. That's if even if there's a planet here for them to mop up. And so recognising that the impact that we, or the choices that we make today will have monumental ripple effects for future generations then maybe we'll start to take ownership of those choices. And I felt like the Project Envoy gave us an idea, I guess an, an understanding that yes, right now we're the problem, but we can also become the solution. And as you said, there's this disconnection between what science says and what our leaders are doing. 
and our leaders are saying, well, we want to protect our people, but at the cost of our planet and the cost of our wildlife and the cost of nature, which is actually the one thing that gives us life, then not having that connection and understanding is where we 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 cause all of this dissent and and uh, and antagonistic kind of um, I don't know mm, anger yeah. and frustration and blame and criticism. You know, we all started pointing the finger outside of us. And it's like you know what? I would just love to see some ownership and leadership within our federal government that says we respect the planet. I haven't mm. seen that yet. Throw into the mix a. Uh a very broken information ecosystem with social media and fake news and some media that are skewed towards certain political persuasions. And you really do understand why we find ourselves in the, uh, the predicament that, that we are in. Yeah. What is it that Ocean Impact All wants to do? Like, how is it that you're kind of managing or attempting to mitigate this challenge or this issue? So basically, we want to fast track um, innovation and yes. solutions for the ocean. We sort of recognise that, you know, business as usual um, is constantly around us and is what is being advocated by our current leaders. But we know that business as, as usual is only going to perpetuate the problems that we currently face. And so this idea of, of good business, of, of business that is driven by making a positive environmental or social impact, B Corps and all these innovators who are disruptive and they want to do business differently, um, they're, they're our target. So we're basically trying to find uh, the entrepreneurs and innovators who can help treat planet ocean better and fast track their success because that business as unusual can overtake and overcome the status quo and give us a fighting chance of this world of you know, more conscious capitalism, where we put people on the planet at the center of our decisions, not as a collateral damage approach. I love that. Yes. Conscious capitalism. Conscious capitalism. I so, you know, it. at the moment, for example, um, you know, back to sort of the Envoy Shark Cull film, um, I understand that a, a part of that conversation that they bring up is on, well, what are the technological solutions? What are the innovations that can say, you know what, we don't need those lethal shark nets anymore because there's smarter shark nets like the ones that are being developed in South Africa and over in Fremantle in WA that don't trap and maim and kill innocent marine life. Like there's obviously technology around drone surveillance. There's obviously technology around other solutions. Like if the solutions exist, why are we sitting here debating? It's like Damon Gamow's 2040 film. The solutions are here. Why are we having a debate? Why are we subsidising all these industries that are causing harm? That's where the attention and the money needs to be going. Exactly. So why aren't we? <laughs> well, I think it's because there's a lot of vested interest and it is that yeah. model of capitalism that we need to slowly deconstruct and dismantle in order to create that new opportunity. It's like, you know, in an ecosystem, it's never going to be a drastic change from one to the other. You're always going to have that period of, you know, change, and that's what we need yeah. to see now. But if we just keep perpetuating the old, we're going to be having the same conversation in a decade's time. Exactly, and that comes from the top. We're seeing that lack of leadership and that lack of embracing of the of the consideration of changing to these new ideals or these new solutions. And and uh, yeah, like you say, you know, they're putting the, the the profits of the of the people before the 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 long term. 
um, growth and sustainability of the planet. And so, yeah, if those if those political agendas stay at the forefront of their mind, then they're going to stop seeing or even, you know, they, they'll just complete, completely ignore the solutions that are right there in front of us. Let's talk again about um, leadership because back to what we're doing at OIO, you know, we need leaders out there who feel confident that they can pursue a career which is regenerative and restorative and you know with awake academy you're trying to help people be their best self so again back to this leadership i mean you've just obviously faced um you know so many unique challenges and experiences through your various roles over the time so what would you say to to people out there who are listening to this podcast and going yeah there, there's something more for me or there's I've got to get through a funk. Like what is your, some of your messaging for people out there to, to help them be their best? You know, there's not one size fits all style of solution to you know, getting through a funk or overcoming a challenge or even overcoming fear. It's, it comes down to, you know, I was thinking about this just when you're asking the question, I was thinking about when I was 17 years of age and I joined the pro tour, I had this conscious thought about, who do I want to be? You know, how do, how do I want to show up each day? How do I want to be remembered? And that really drove my decision to embrace the fact that I was a role model from a very young age. Anyone who stands firm in their values, anyone who's willing to voice their opinion without fear of retribution or, or ridicule and stand strongly enough to have their their strong beliefs lightly held to where they're not easily persuaded but they are open to hearing other people's opinions and learning from other people's experiences and knowledge that's the kind of leader i wanted to be and so that helped me make my decisions so when i thought about what kind of role model i want to be that was a matter of just going, you know what, I want to, co I commit to making the time for people. I recognise that it takes 10 seconds to leave a lasting impression. There's no second chance at a first impression. I recognise that my, my words have weight. And there was times when I abused that privilege. There was times when I took that for granted. There was times when I used my words incorrectly and I've hurt people and I've ruined relationships and I've burned down bridges and I've learnt from that. But ultimately it comes down to asking yourself, who do you want to be? And what impact or what difference do you want to make on the world? Mm, I love that. Beautiful words. Thanks. <laughs> um, tell us a little bit about um, Manly. I mean, Manly is a place in the world that is really, it's always been a part of my life, obviously being an Australian and growing up on the central coast of New South Wales, we know Manly. But now that I am living and working in Manly or close to it, my co-founder is also there. Um, Describe Manly to the world and what it, why it's so special for you, this part of the world. They're better off Googling it than me describing it because <laughs> I've got a real, like, sometimes I have a rose-tinted lens of Manly and sometimes it's a bit grey, you know. I think about my childhood, especially my teenage years when I encountered a lot of threats and hostility and challenges. You know, there's Manly is divided by two very aesthetically pleasing stormwater pipes <laughs> and those stormwater pipes pretty much d divide territories along the beach. So you've got South Stain, which is where Kitty's Corner is, which is where I grew up and, and honed my skills and my foamy. Then I graduated from there up to Mid Stain, which I stepped off my foamy and had to move past where they, they put up these 
uh, yellow signs or, or maybe sometimes they're black and white with a line through them basically says no surfboards past this point so once I once I stepped onto a fiberglass surfboard, I had to get out of Kitty's Corner and move up to Midstain. And I found a whole new tribe up there, a whole tribe of guys. It was me and 14 guys. And we used to hang there all school holidays, all weekends, after school. I never wagged school. I really wanted to declare that. I never Good wagged one. school. I, I, I finished my HSC, but surfing was just my passion and the sport that I kept thinking about, daydreaming about, wanting to be a part of. Then I actually started my own board riders club. I was the president of this 14 man and one girl board riders club. And uh, that went for a couple of years. And then I joined Queenscliff board riders, which is right up the Northern end of Manly. And uh, I kind of skipped past North Stain. But when I think about North Stain, that's where the best surfers are. That's where the best waves are. And that's where I cop the most of her, most amount of hostility and harassment. You know, guys would be paddling up to me and going, you're a girl, get out of the water and just look at them and go, what are you doing out here then? You know, I had to, I had to <laughs> yeah, stand up. Play and, back, yeah. yeah. I had to give it back. But then there was times when I didn't really have the courage or the strength or the fortitude to give it back to them. So mm. I, I would paddle in and go somewhere where I had a friend or an ally that said, you know, I believe in you. You've got what it takes. So Manly brought the best out of me, but it also challenged me to, to stand up and fight for what I believed in. But it's Has one been... and a half kilometres of beautiful sand. Sorry to interrupt your beautiful podcast experience, but I just wanted to jump in and remind you that in order to help us grow the crowd of ocean impact supporters out there, we really do need to see this podcast reach more ear canals. So would you kindly consider subscribing? Would you kindly consider writing a review? And if you love an episode, please share it around. We're blown away by the support, but with more listeners, we can make an even greater impact. Has there been um, times in life where another part of the world was luring you in for a long-term stint and stay, or have you always felt very anchored and gravitated towards where you still currently live? I'm still very anchored and gravitated towards Manly. It is the most appropriately named beach in the world, but in saying that there are a lot more women out there now, it's not so manly as it used to be. I did live in Hawaii for about five years. I had a boyfriend over there, a guy called Ken Bradshaw, who um, is a larger-than-life character. He introduced me to toe-in surfing and really made me a formidable competitor in big waves, especially at Sunset Beach, which is where we lived. And I fell in love with Hawaii the moment I went there. I mean, I my dad took me, instead of going to schoolies in 1989, my dad took me to Hawaii. And uh, and I remember sitting on the beach. It was like the, I think it was at the time, it was the AAA Billabong Pro and uh, or 5a billabong pro and i remember sitting on the little the little platform on the beachfront just what just mesmerized by the enormous amount of power and awe of nature over there because the ocean is so much more powerful and uh, and i just fell in love with it and so i couldn't wait to get back there the following year just to sit in the channel and just to watch it and then I became a, a quite a dominant force out at Sunset Beach because of my love affair with it uh, and also my willingness to take the poundings when they came. So uh, Hawaii uh, has always held a very special place in my heart and I still love going back there to visit. What's your relationship with surfing like nowadays? It's a love affair. It's, it's an addiction. It's my happy place. <laughs> I love surfing more than I've ever loved it in my life. So today, of course, my... 
my expectations are, measured, are a lot more, more measured than they used to be. You know, I don't go out thinking about a heat I have to surf or a performance that I have to measure up to. Today I paddle out with the freedom to have fun. If I do one turn that stokes me out, I'm, I'm satisfied. I'm like, all right, my work here is done. Well, maybe I can do another one. So I give it to the guys. Um, I found, a, you know, a whole, a whole new tribe in, in the different beaches that I surf now, but my – uh surfing for me is my place of solace it's my place of freedom it's a place where i can express myself it's a place where i can process my emotions whether they're fear-based or love-based it's a place where i meditate it's a, just a place where i feel absolute freedom and uh and surfing will always you know hold that place in my heart it's just where i truly connect and center saying that i've been out of the water for a month so i'm feeling a little agitated no doubt. Yeah, you'll dry out. Careful, you yeah. the scales to dry out. <laughs> I'm still swimming. Oh, that's good. Look, Lane. Um, I always like to to hand it over to our guests for some some final words, and maybe there's something that um, you know was triggered by today's conversation that you want to dive into a little bit deeper, or something that uh, you just want to talk about. So I'll I'll leave it to you for some some closing words, and of course a final call to action for people to to, to follow your journey and look further into your projects. Well, thanks, Tim. Well, I'm just really grateful for organisations such as yours. You know, we, I think it, the Ocean Impact Organisation is a really simple and clear uh, example of how one person can make a difference. And, um, you know, I was having this discussion after watching, you know, these these documentaries that that highlight how destructive we have been throughout our last 30 years um and some people like i said have this apathetic mindset was like well it's it's screwed no matter what we do we can't make a difference and and i feel that the fight for the bite was a classic example of the movement and the power of a voice and when all the surfers around australia banded together and believed that just by making a stand and letting these companies know that we are going to fight for our rights, we are going to fight for our planet. That clearly demonstrated to me that we have the power to initiate change. We have the power to instigate change. But being apathetic, standing back and waiting for someone else to do it is not going to make it happen. You think about the people who fought for Franklin Dam and Franklin River in Tasmania all that time ago and how that preserves such a pristine part of this country and then you think about all of the clearing that's going on now and the destruction of our koala habitat we just we can't be ignorant anymore we we have to we have to actually take ownership of the fact that this current moment in time is our problem and we can be the solution but we must band together we must seek more knowledge we must seek to understand before we're being understood and there's plenty of scientific research and evidence out there that can give us more clarity about it and then we need to band together and voice our concerns to the people in these leadership positions who work for us we don't work for them they need to start listening to us but we're obviously not being loud enough so we need to band together get a little bit louder recognize that we are the solution and that we can make a difference and keep putting that step forward each and every day uh, lane Beachy, thank you for all that you do for planet and its people and thank you so much for your time today Thanks, Tim. Thanks for your time, too. See you later, everyone. Bye.
his rage and blue. 